0: How does a scholar interrogate the issue of whiteness, not only in the objects of study, but in their own professional and intellectual journey? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Mauro Porto at Tulane University in this episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojtkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi. Doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nosas historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I'm delighted to have here Mauro Porto. Mauro is an associate professor in the Department of Communication at Tulane University, where he's been working since 2004. Before then, Mauro was professor in the School of Communication at the University of Brasilia and in the Institute of Political Science and International Relations. Mauro did his BA in Communication at University of Brasilia, where he also did his master's in Political Science. Then he did his PhD in communication at the University of California in San Diego. Uh, In addition to his positions at Tulane and uh, at the University of Brasilia, he was also visiting professor uh, at FLAXO in Guatemala and program officer at the Ford Foundation in Rio de Janeiro. Mauro is the author of two books, uh, the most recently published Media and Power, Media Power, sorry, and Democratization in Brazil, TV Globo and the Dilemmas of Political Accountability. And he has a fabulous new book project uh, that hopefully will be in your favorite brick and mortar or online bookstore very soon. He's author a number of uh, journal articles and book chapters and he's one of the leading uh, voices in the political economy of Latin American media and Latin American journalism. Uh, Mauro, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you, it's my pleasure to be here. It's Our pleasure to have you, my friend. So how did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become an academic?
1: Yeah, well, first, um, you know, I had to decide what to do in college. And my original thought is, I was excited about writing, and I thought journalism was, you know, what my vocation was all about. So I joined, uh, my bachelor's degree was in communication with an emphasis in journalism at the University of Brasilia. And um, but, you know, I graduated, but I really did not want to pursue uh, a journalist career as much. And I, I took a break after college and went to for a two-year adventure in Europe. I lived in Europe for two years. And, and when I came back, I discovered that a professor that I admired a lot, that I had met, had been a professor of mine during undergraduate uh, work was Venicio Lima, and he's one of the f- leading figures of political communication research in Brazil. And I learned that he had just transferred to the Department of Political Science, and they, were, they had a call for their master's program. So when I came to Brazil, and two weeks later, I applied for these master's programs, and I got in. And I started working with Vinicio, who who was an incredible mentor. And and, and since the master's, I started working with political communication, trying to understand the intersection of media systems and political systems. So I wrote the master's um, thesis about the 1992 mayoral election in Sao Paulo and the role of the media in that election, which is a small study. Uh, but already in the master's, I was interested in questions of reception. So I did a small panel study with voters during the election. And so I interviewed 90 voters four times during the campaign. And um, and that was my first engagement with empirical research and that it was related to media and political communication. So uh, I think it, as uh, often happens is you no know, it's just random events that happens that you casually learn that uh, a faculty member that you admire enjoyed and admired um, had transferred to a new department they were opening they had a call for applications for the master's program and I Learn about it and applied and got into the master's, and that's how everything got started.
0: All right, and after you finished your master's, what happened?
1: Yeah, at that time in Brazil, um, the number of PhD scholars with PhD outside the main axis of Rio Sao Paulo was not that significant. So And at that time, it was possible to start an academic career without a PhD. So as soon as I finished the master's, I applied for a a position at the University of Brasilia and I passed the entry exam. And so I became a professor of political science first. So from 1993 to 1996, I taught political science at the University of Brasilia. So, uh, and then uh, after three years, I got a scholarship from the Brazil's Ministry of Education. And I went to get my PhD at the University of California, in San Diego. So, um, and then after the PhD, I went back to my teaching position at the University of Brasilia. So um, that's how I um, my academic career started. I started originally teaching. So I have been always in between disciplines, right? Working with political science, but also communication and going back and forth between the two. The master's was in political science, the PhD was in communication. So I have been always trying to integrate, do some level of interdisciplinary work uh, in my
0: research. Very interesting. How did you decide where to go for study and how did you decide communication versus PhD versus, uh, sorry, political science for your PhD? Well,
1: truth. Well, first, you know, I went, I looked um, after scholars that I admire their work. And the reason I applied to UCSD was that Dan Helling was there and he's a leading figure in political science and com- the Department of Communication, UCSD also had other stellar scholars like Michael Shudson and others who really were, uh, who I really admire the work. So I got even to, when I was a teacher at the university, a professor at the University of, mm-hmm. of Brasilia, I organized an international colloquium and I invited Dan, Dan Hallin to come. So he was one of the participants. So I got to know him personally. Even before I applied to graduate school, and the fact why communication, not political science. The truth of the matter is, I, I remember that I applied to to uh, three sci PhD programs and three communication policy uh, communication programs, and not accidentally, the the three sci PhD programs rejected. So, uh, so I had. It was not a difficult choice, uh, it was basically restricted to the to the field of communication that has always been more interdisciplinary and more open to, to scholars engaging with different topics and uh, uh,
0: literatures. Yeah. Okay, and how was your experience as a Brazilian, uh, you know, studying in the US at UCSD? Well, it was
1: absolutely exciting to be able to devote yourself uh, to study and research. I had a good scholarship from the Brazilian government that allowed me to sustain myself. And of course, all these full PhD scholarships are under threat nowadays. There is a huge cut in the budget of the Ministry of Education and for research which is really regrettable because, of course, that enables, you know, enabled my whole academic career. Um, So, and yeah, and at UCSD, uh, as I said, I was able to work with uh, scholars who really opened new horizons to, to my research, not only my committee members, including Michael Shudson and Dan Halling, who was my advisor, but also Alan Siter, who was a stellar scholar that helped me with the reception the side. Uh, and also in political science, people like Samuel Popkin. And I also had a sociologist in my committee, Akos Ronatash. So it was really uh, exciting because the program was highly interdisciplinary and not only welcome, but you know created good incentives for us to engage with interdis- interdisciplinary research so it was fascinating it was an exciting period in my life and uh, i learned a lot in that period
0: wonderful did you think you want at the time do you think you wanted to stay in the u.s did you think you wanted to go back Brazil. Not at all.
1: Uh, the idea was always to go back. Since I had a scholarship from the Brazilian government, you know, the commitment is that you go back. And, and I never thought that I would end up teaching at the U.S. And the kind of dissertation that I decided to, to write was more uh, aimed at what I thought would be a good contribution to political communication research in Brazil rather than what dissertation will help me get a job in the us market so what i did in the phd dissertation was a study a reception study of television that combined both the more quantitative social science methods and approaches because i did controlled experiments with news but also the more qualitative side of um Focus groups and ethnographic work with audiences. So I did both, uh, you know, a controlled experiment with news, but also uh, focus groups with telenovela viewers. And I thought, well, at that time there weren't many, uh, there weren't as many studies of reception uh, of media in Brazil, especially in, in the fields of political communication, political science. Uh, so I thought that would be. Um, more important contribution to Brazilian scholarship rather than engaging in other types of research. So that the whole dissertation was not really designed to appeal to an international job market. And that's so much the case that I translated the dissertation to Portuguese and published it as a book in Brazil because I thought that's where it's uh, intellectual intervention would be more significant.
0: And then going back to Brazil after a PhD in the States, you went back to your same university to teach. Yes. But how was that experience of going back after five years in the U.S. with a different, you know, training?
1: Yeah, it was exciting because <clears throat> you come back from the PhD full of energy and excitement. And one of the things we did at the University of Brasilia it was to create the PhD in communication. So, as I was a member of the, we had three graduate coordinators in the department and myself, the new, the, the new Lopez and Giona Moura. So, we proposed the PhD program, got it accepted. So, I was very, those were very exciting times in terms of a young scholar. And we also created an interdisciplinary research group on political communication. Not, not not created. Uh, we restarted the research group that had been created by Venicio Lima, the Center for Studies of Media and Politics. So this was, you know, from 2001 to 2004. This was a very exciting period, and um, the University of Brasilia had very. Uh, uh, interesting and um, engaging students. So both my undergraduate courses and my graduate courses were very um, dynamic and interesting. So it was a, a quite exciting period too. It was full of energy and we're creating a new PhD and we reorganized the research center. So yeah, it was also exciting to be
0: back. Did you remain sort of in regular connection with the international academic community during that period or did you focus mostly on uh, home country on Brazil? No, I remained in contact
1: especially because again at the time the Brazilian government provided good funding for international conferences for example. So I re- kept attending the main uh, professional conferences like the ICA, the International Communication Association Conference. I went to a few meetings of LASA, the Latin American Studies Association. And of course, attending those conferences was extremely important in opening uh, new venues of research and publication abroad in the US, and but also in Europe. So that's, I'm, very convinced that's very important for a young scholar um, to attend these conferences and that's where people get to know your work and get to know you that's where most of my invitations for talks and publications came from so but that those were different times when there was more funding for international travel by brazilian scholars
0: So you were four years in Brasilia as professor post-PhD, right? Post-PhD, yeah. From 2001
1: 2004, so it was three years. Three years. And then you went to Tulane. Yeah, that was another interesting story because that uh, was also not a career decision. What happened is uh, around... 2003, I got uh, you know in the list serve of alumni from UCSD. Vicky Mayer, a colleague who had gone to graduate school with me, uh, posted anyway. She was teaching here in New Orleans uh, at the Department of Communication. She posted a call for um, for a new position. They were opening for a visiting professor. So the initial so it was a one year visiting assistant professor position. So I applied for that and I took an unpaid leave from the University of Brasilia. And I thought that I would come just for a year and I would go back to Brazil. Uh, but while I was in here in Tulane, they opened a tenure track position and I applied to it and ended up um, getting approved. So that's when I started my tenure track. So again, you know, there's a random uh events that that are shaped by contingency and your personal networks. That's you know how you learn about this position. And how and how you know the it's also important to stress the importance of the Stone Center for Latin American Studies at Tulane, because my the position that I applied for was created with support from title six a US a US program devoted to support area studies. So from the first six years, you know the US government paid half of my salary for the position salary and Tulane paid the other half. So um I credit the ability to come to Tulane a lot to the strength of Latin American studies here, uh, which is that's why they wanted someone that were doing that was doing research on media in Latin America. That was the call for the position. So again, uh, as often happens, the contingency, right? That I was the right place at the right time.
0: Interesting. And how, how was your experience? How, how would you compare you know, teaching in Brasilia and teaching at Tulane? Right um, <laughs> Post PhD, because pre-PhD, pre one can see that there are other sort of factors that might come into play. But now you have your PhD, you are an established scholar yeah. internationally, yeah. and now you have a full-time position building, rebuilding a program in Brasilia, go to Tulane. What would you say are the main sort of similarities and differences?
1: Yeah, the academic systems are very different, right? So in Brazil, when you, um, apply for a teaching position in a university. If you get, if you pass, you know, you basically get tenure from the start. Uh, there is a probation period of two years, I think or three years, but basically means if you don't do anything wrong, you are, you get, you are, you are tenured basically, right? And of course, in the U.S. was radically different. I was starting a tenure track position which as everybody knows is very stressful and so um, so the, the teaching at the University of Brasilia was different because I was trying it was right after the PhD and as I said there was there was a group of young professors there that were very excited and we were able to create the PhD program uh, but you know coming to the U.S. and then starting a tenure track position, you are under a very different set of pressures, right? So your teaching has to be combined with a strong research record, and service. So those were quite, you know, um, after I came to Tulane, of course, I went, I went through those usual six years of, f- first five years of, Stressful publishing and research work and teaching aimed at passing the tenure review. And, uh, but again, what was what made all that easier and more pleasurable was the fact that Tulane is such a fantastic place in terms of scholars doing the kind of work that I do. There are a lot of people doing exciting work on Brazil at Tulane uh, and also a huge community of Latin American studies scholars. So um, that in itself uh, was remarkable and that allowed me, for example, with funding from the Stone Center, I organized a a major international seminar at Tulane and I brought all the scholars, not all, but a lot of scholars that I admire their work to, to Tulane to, um, So yeah, it was a very difficult, intense period, but at the same time rewarding because of all this community of scholars that, and of course, it's New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans is a special place. And all of that made this transition easier, but it was very, it was a difficult period, very
0: stressful. But you succeeded at got tenure, which yes. is important. And then it seems that you took a break and you went back to Brazil to work yeah. outside of academia. There, were,
1: there was a lot of back and forth between the U.S. and Brazil, right? So when I delivered my tenure dossier and I'm waiting for the results, and in the meantime, you know, a friend again, people should know the importance of friendship and personal networks. So a friend of mine who worked at UNESCO sent me these emails and said the Ford Foundation in Rio is starting a new uh, area um, to support work on media and freedom of expression and they're hiring a new program officer and you should apply uh, and I thought myself well you know who knows maybe if I if I don't get tenure maybe I will have a job why not so I. Applied without much hope, but they ended up selecting me to start a new portfolio of grants, aimed at supporting civil society groups, social movements, and academic institutions that were at the front line of struggles for media reform and freedom of expression in Brazil. So I asked Tulane for an unpaid leave and. Um, And they granted me the leave. So I went to Rio to work at the Ford Foundation without knowing if I had tenure or not. So, uh, And when I was there, I was happy to learn that I passed tenure review. But then I started this two years and a half of completely different kind of work, right? It was not, um, it was an exciting period of working daily with civil society organizations, social movements, and not only as funder of their activities, but co-participants in these struggles to democratize Brazil's media system, to build a more plural and diverse public sphere in Brazil. So it was a privilege to be able to be there and work. And I learned, a lot about Brazil's civil society and the challenges and difficulties that social movements and civil society organizations and academic institutions face to do that kind of work. And they taught me a lot about social justice and and racial justice um, that became part of my current Research agenda and intellectual concerns.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So it was a change in terms of going from academia to uh, working philanthropy, in future, right? Yeah, yeah, going to philanthropy. That's right. And for philanthropy in a major organization, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, going from the states back to Brazil, and within Brazil, it seems to me looking at. Um, at your vita that most of your work had taken place in Brasilia, but now you are in Rio, which has a very different yes. ethos, right? Exactly. Um, so so what did you learn uh you know through all these changes? And how did that sort of shape the next stage, the return to Tulane, etc.? I mentioned that it informed uh conceptually some of the work that you've been doing since, but if you could elaborate Because these periods of of transition, these periods of change can be very fertile, right? Times for renewal, right? And and rejuvenation.
1: Yeah. In my book, my new book that is in process of, it should come out soon, I hope. uh, I start with the process of introspection. I look at my life trajectory and try to understand why I was unable to predict the kind of uh, democratic decay and uh, and the rise of the far right in Brazil and 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 why you know not only scholars were unable to predict but were hardly been successful in explaining how Brazil who looked so promising uh in the early 2000s in terms of declining poverty rates, declining inequality, democratic consolidation, not only in the period of the PT, but even in the period of Cardozo from the Social Democratic Party, right? There was a period of stability. How could that all fall apart? And then my new book, the introduction in this introspection, I say, well, my position as a white, Middle class subject in a very hierarchical uh, society could have helped me understand the nature of the conservative revolt uh, and predict some of the uh of its elements. And the question was, why I failed, right? And that has to do with you know this key category that for me is very central in the current work, which is this notion of interrogating whiteness, right? So, and I tell some episodes during my work at the Ford Foundation that would end up later on uncovering to me the centrality of white identity in Brazilian politics. So I tell, for example, there was a meeting of Grantees that were working on issues of racial justice in Brazil, and the goal of the meeting was to discuss what are the new, uh, you know, where should organizations of racial justice and the foundation prioritize their work? What were the emerging areas? Uh, so members of the black movement you know, talked about the key issue of the genocide of young black men in Brazil by the police, this was one of the topics. But then Marcelo Paixão was an economist at the Federal University of Rio, and now he's at UT Austin. Now, at the time he was in, as an economist, he made an intervention saying that the black movement uh, and the foundation needed to be ready to the huge backlash that would soon emerge about the ascension of Blacks in Brazil, both economic with the declining poverty inequality rates, but also the rise of racial conscious policies like affirmative action. And that took the room quite by surprise. And what I write in the book is that I failed to fully grasp uh, the the nature of that alert. I did not think that there would be such a significant backlash. And part of the reasons why was that I was not interrogating the nature of white identity and middle-class status in Brazil. And, And that became very clear, you know, in the historical process that followed. So I started looking back and saying, well, the reason why I'm here as a professor in the US enjoying this privilege is that my family achieved middle class status by taking the opportunity uh, you know, using social closure mechanisms that are central to define whiteness and middle class identity in Brazil. One is my parents were able to put me through private education that allowed me to enter a public university, which is a very unfair and system that affirmative action tried to break, right? And also I looked at the centrality of domestic workers in Brazil. Brazil is by far the country that has more women working as servants. There are more than 6 million women. So in almost every middle-class household, including every family of university professors, there is a maid working, mostly black women, Uh, And so the middle class can rely on the cheap labor of domestic workers uh, to to ensure its level of status and living standards. So I started interrogating all that, and I started to understand that not only affirmative action, but the constitutional amendment that gave rights to domestic workers was another huge source of resentment in Brazil, in the white middle class. In other words, if I had looked back at my own life trajectory, I could have understood the centrality of this stratified system of education in my social ascension. I could have understood the role and place of domestic workers in white privilege. Uh, However, the the power of whiteness is exactly that Um, it's, uh, it's, it's invisible, right? You don't often realize how these systems of privilege work. So the work at the Ford Foundation and interacting with leading figures of the black movement, of activists in the front lines of social justice struggles really opened my eyes to a series of questions and issues that I had never interrogated in my
0: research, yeah. That's super interesting and then after two and a half years, you went back to Tulane. Yes. How was that decision? Number one. Number two, how was the intellectual and personal, shall we say, transformation that you experienced when doing the work at the Ford Foundation shape this, shall we call it, second stage at Tulane, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, in the past 10 years, essentially, but um, well, eight, but so, so how did that transition happen? Why not staying in Brazil, for instance? Mm-hmm. And um, and how, after you know, going through this intellectual and personal transformation, how has your experience been? Not just you know research, mm-hmm. but you know, experience in the classroom as a member of the university community, etc. Yeah, there are many
1: factors, as usual, involved in such decisions. You know. And one of them was, of course, I got tenured. That was good news, and I could continue with my academic career. Uh, but also, for different reasons, my then wife was still in New Orleans. And, um, and, be, and we, you know, um, so I had the, the, the personal side too of having family ties in New Orleans. So there wasn't much thought about the need that I could stay in Brazil. And it was very clear that I had tenure, that I had a family here. So it was not um, a very difficult decision. So I decided to come back. But of course, another phase began because as soon following year after my return, um, my colleagues elected me department chair. And I tried to do a bad work, but apparently it was good enough that they reelected me. So I did two terms, which was six years. And contrary to some academics that I admire, I was not able to keep up with my writing research while doing that kind of administrative work. However, after six years of being chair, I got a one year sabbatical leave that I just concluded. And that year of sabbatical leave really gave me the opportunity to put all these experiences together and write a very different kind of book uh, that engages with a very new set of questions and literatures that really refreshed my research agenda. So I, I credit all these experiences professionally and personally as building blocks to the kind of research I'm doing now. Very
0: inspiring, Um, how was being department chair? What did you learn (laughs) uh,
1: that
0: you might wanna share?
1: (laughs) I don't know if my colleagues would like to hear that, but yeah, it's it's quite challenging because, you know, I remember uh, when I came to Tulane, we had a wonderful colleague that was chair at the time, Jim Mackin. Uh, unfortunately, he has passed away already. Uh, but you know, when he learned that I was going to be chair, uh, he he uh, he said, "Oh, the first thing you need to buy is some uh, paper towels." I said, "What paper towels? Uh, you you get some uh, crying colleagues in your office. <laughs> there is a drama, the drama of interpersonal." relations and conflict in academia that you don't know about <laughs> so he was he was uh, funny but also he was alerting me that there is a whole side of family therapy that the chair is supposed to engage with that uh, people don't know about and and there is and i guess you know uh my colleagues appreciated my ability to ne- negotiate to navigate conflict and uh, um, disagreement and uh, trying to build a middle ground, uh, And I was not as successful, maybe administratively, in running some stuff. But apparently, I did a good enough job that they they insisted that I should do a second term.
0: <laughs> okay, and. Um... What's next for you, Mauro?
1: Ah, good question. Well, right now I'm very excited about finishing the revisions of the book, and the debate that took place today in our seminar in our colloquium, uh, in the series, you uh, know, really continued to push me in the direction of it may maybe uh, you know bringing these ideas to a more global context and maybe doing more comparative work and including the us so i have been thinking in the last few years about comparisons between the rise of the far right in brazil and the us which is completely different processes however you know i did teach a course at tulane in the honors seminar about uh Inequality and polarization in the U.S. I give a talk in Portugal about the 2016 election in in the U.S. and the rise of Trump. But there's also the opportunity to do, uh, you know, comparisons with. You know, the, today there was a question about India and affirmative action in India. So there is not so much potential there to to try to apply these ideas in other contexts and really engage with comparative work. So that's, I
0: think, will be coming next. Right. And then, you know, if you had magical powers, and you could be granted one wish about what you'd like to change in the field of communication and media studies, after this very rich and non-linear trajectory of yours, Right? Yeah. From Brazil to the US, to Brazil back, back to the US. As a scholar, as a program officer, as a department chair, what would you wish for that you could change? To the f- discipline of communication globally? Yes. Which is a
1: very wide discipline, right? But I wish, you know, the research in communication would be less ethnocentric, right? And let me explain that. I was always troubled by how someone doing work in the US is doing work on communication. Uh, but if you're doing work on Brazil or another context, then you're doing comparative work, right? Um, or you're you're, you're dealing with... Uh, you are doing work that's specialized and maybe not as useful to the discipline as someone doing work about the same processes in the US or in Europe, right? <clears throat> so uh, one thing is I would wish that a lot of the discipline was not as dismissive about the heuristic value of research in other contexts to their disciplines, right? And um, And scholars who do work in Latin America or in the global south are always seen as offering contributions that are less valuable for the discipline than people doing work in the Netherlands or Canada or the US. So I remember submitting articles to journals and the reviewers would say, wow, you should explain better why this study about TV Global in Brazil is useful to scholars doing general communication work. Well, you wouldn't get that review if you were writing about Fox News in the US, right? Uh so that that what would, would be one wish. And uh, the other one is um, although this is has there are more positive advancements in the US than in Brazil in communication studies, is that scholars would inter could interrogate more the 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 pervasiveness of whiteness in our, in Brazilian academia. So this is starting. But when you look, for example, to write this book, I had to review the literature. For example, about domestic workers and media, right? And I discovered that is very little done, and what's done is mostly by young female scholars who are really, you know, opening new perspectives in the discipline that nobody else is doing. So the question is why my white male colleagues have been doing research for decades, have never looked at institutions that are so central to Brazil's stratification system and and political cleavages like this impressive uh, reliance on domestic workers, right? Well, that has to do with the fact that not only most Communication scholars are white, Uh, and if you look carefully, most of the great majority of them uh, rely on the labor of these mostly Black women in their houses, right? So so I wish uh, the discipline, especially in Brazil, would have paid more attention to these institutional forms of inequalities that are prevail very pervasive but at the same time invisible
0: all right thank you very much Mauro for sharing your absolutely fascinating journey with us uh, thank you to our listeners for staying with us to the end and I invite everybody to join us for this next episode of El Café Latinx
1: thank you very much it was a pleasure to be in this
0: conversation Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by Executive Producer Mora Matassi.